the Art of Leadership Network. Hey guys, before we get into today's episode, it's Carrie here. I want to share something with you that I'm doing for free this month. I am hosting a two-day Church Disruption Summit. It's an hour a day, and I'm going to dissect the seven disruptive church trends that will rule the next decade. You'll leave fully equipped to lead something bigger, better, more meaningful, and helpful, and we'll talk about how to engineer the change you're going to need in the next decade. If you want to see what the church looks like in 2032, don't miss it. The two-day Church Disruption Summit, just one hour a day. Register for free, bring your whole team, and go here to register them, churchdisruptionsummit.com. Again, that's churchdisruptionsummit.com to register for free. And now to today's show. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. I am so glad you joined us. Today we got something, well, totally different. Hang on. Uh, it's a very different kind of interview, but I'm very excited to bring you Brian Zond. And today's episode is brought to you by Tithely. You can get your free resource kit to help church leaders do fundraising better by simply going to increasegenerosity.com and by Compassion International. You can equip local churches around the world while seeing your church grow in the process by going to compassion.com slash church. Well, what's so different about this episode? It's an interview. It's a great interview with Brian Zond, uh, but it's very philosophical. I studied a bit of philosophy in my university travels, and we kind of nerd out about deconstruction, Friedrich Nietzsche, nihilism, and the alternative to Christianity, and the oddity of post-Christian America. So if you're looking for a meta-narrative of what's operating in the background of our culture right now, I think this will help. I found it fascinating. Brian is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He is known for his theologically informed preaching and his embrace of the deep and long history of the church. We get into patristics, if you're interested in that. And he is the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, A Farewell to Mars, and Beauty Will Save the World. We discuss his latest book and the ideas in it. It's a book called When Everything's on Fire. Fascinating book, particularly loved the first half of the book. So, so good. So anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy this. Let me know. Uh, shout me out. I'm Carrie at kerrynewhoff.com by email. You can also shout me out on the socials. Uh, I do enjoy this kind of conversation and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I do. By the way, Brian's got some views that will probably upset people on the right, and then he will upset people on the left, and then he'll upset people in the middle. Uh, to me, that is a great conversation. I mean, none of us really has a monopoly on the truth. So if something triggers you partway through the conversation, uh, just listen to the end. That's what I would encourage you to do. So today's episode is brought to you by Tithely. Pastors, you know the health of your church is deeply connected to the generosity of your members, but creating a culture of generosity at your church is not always so simple. So Tithely is a free tool that helps churches increase generosity through digital giving. And now they put a resource together that is exclusively available to you as listeners of my podcast. I want you to go download it. When you do, you will get a five-step plan for building a culture of recurring giving at your church, a practical guide for fundraising in 2022 and what's left of it, and a bumper video for a sermon on generosity and a whole lot more. So it's only for listeners of this podcast you want to get it go here. It's free. Go to increasegenerosity.com, hit download, and you're off to the races. So increasegenerosity.com because, well, we're in kind of unstable territory now as far as the markets go, right? So you want to check that out from Tidely. Also, been a long time, long time supporter of Compassion International, done a lot of trips with them, and uh, it's a ministry that I love. 
They're an incredible organization whose goal is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. They currently serve, get this, over 2 million children and their families in some of the most poverty-stricken areas of the world. And here's my favorite part. All of this is happening through local churches. I've been on half a dozen compassion trips, mostly in Central America. And I got to tell you, it's incredible. They're all about equipping the local church. I've been in those local churches. Every single child is cared for by a leader in their community. So when I was lead pastor of Conexus, I had been working in Guatemala, our church, for almost 20 years now, and we incorporated Compassion as our partner to do it a lot more efficiently and effectively than we could. Compassion has made it easy for everybody in our church to put their faith in action by caring for a child in need. My wife and I sponsor kids through Compassion. And so if you want to learn more about Compassion, check them out. Go to compassion.church to learn how. And this will help you engage the next generation who's asking the question, what is your church doing about justice? Check out compassion.com church to learn more. Well, with all that said, uh, let's get ready for, I think, a very rich and exciting conversation with Brian Zond. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Carrie. Yeah, it's good to be with you. So I want to start here um, you got a great book. It's called When Everything's on, on Fire. So for those of you watching on YouTube, fantastic book. Uh, I picked it up because numerous friends uh, recommended it and I uh, quickly fell in love with it. But you say early on in your book that being angry with other people for losing their faith is like being angry with medieval people for dying of the plague. <laughs> I loved it. There's a lot packed into that sentence. Can you expand that thought to get us started? Yeah, I mean, this is a book that ultimately I'm going to have to deal with the word deconstruction. We'll get into that. It's not my favorite term, but it's so much in vogue. And there's been kind of a pushback against it. People don't like it that that people are going through, quote, deconstruction. But look, it's it's just part of the time in which we live. I think it's somewhat unavoidable for many people. I don't think most people wake up one morning and said, you know, I just think I'll have a crisis of faith for the fun of it. (laughs) So I can be with all the cool kids. I don't think that's what's going on. Something really has happened, just like something happened in the Middle Ages, that there was this contagion that killed a lot of people, the bubonic plague. Something has happened in late modernity that has imperiled the faith of millions of people. It's a real phenomenon. And for pastors especially, to simply lash out in anger at people for going through this experience, that's about the least helpful pastoral response I can think of. Yeah, so there is something happening in the culture right now. What what do you see as some of the, the sources um, of the deconstruction movement that we're seeing right now? Well, it's something that's been coming for a long time. It is maybe we would say the full flowering of empiricism as dominant way of thinking has crashed upon us, and it's just, it requires now for us to address the problem. And this is what Nietzsche, as well as anybody, foresaw. And uh, so that's that's why early in the Mm. book I engage with Nietzsche, for whom I have a I have respect. I have admiration. I think he's a tragic figure. I think he was ultimately terribly wrong, but he's also deserving of lots of respect. I think he's the most important critic of Christianity in the last thousand years, just like 
Origen and other church fathers had to engage with Celsus, the pagan critic of Christianity. I think uh, modern Christian thinkers have to engage with Nietzsche. Well, Nietzsche did so much. So I want to start here, and I'm glad you went immediately to Nietzsche because I want to camp on him for a little while. I read a few of his books back in college, and you know he's a very influential thinker and have reacquainted myself with him from time to time. But I always was looking, and it's probably out there. I haven't seen it. He was the son of a Lutheran pastor. Mm-hmm. So for the guy who basically famously pronounced, and you can argue whether he was misquoted, you know, God is dead, but that's a Nietzschean idea to be the son of a Lutheran pastor. Let's let's look at that. Like, have you ever read any, like what turned Nietzsche from being raised in this Christian home to the guy shouting God is dead? Ah, well, that's, that's yes, I have read a lot. <laughs> and it's yes, a complex yeah, story. Well, first of all, let's start with God is dead, which is maybe the little aphorism most connected with Nietzsche. Well, first of all, it's not original with Nietzsche. Hegel also had used the phrase. And then this is very interesting. Nietzsche would have heard that line in a Lutheran Holy Saturday hymn, of course, with a different meaning, but it's not original with him. What Nietzsche means by that, and it's 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 most famous in his parable of the madman, which is, I think, worth me trying to summarize real quickly. So, um, Nietzsche writes in 1882, this little parable that goes something like this, on a bright sunny morning, a madman walks into a village holding aloft a lantern and crying out, whither is God? I can't find God. I'm looking for God. Where is God? Villagers gather They begin to laugh at the absurdity of a man carrying a lighted lantern in the bright morning sun, looking for God and saying he can't find God. Then he says to the gathered villagers, you know where God is? God is dead, and we have killed him. And they begin to laugh all the more. And then the madman says, oh, I see, I've come too soon. My time is not yet, but it is coming. And he smashes the lantern and goes into the churches and sings a requiem for God. Okay, what is Nietzsche up to here? Nietzsche is not, he's not making just some sort of shallow argument for atheism. That's not really his point. He has become an atheist, but that's not really his point. His point is that in in the late 19th century European culture that he is observing very critically and very carefully, the Christian God among the masses is becoming more and more unbelievable. Uh, Of course, we've already mentioned that Nietzsche was a PK, a preacher's kid. Having raised three preacher's kids, (laughs) I can tell you something about them. They are acutely sensitive to hypocrisy. They are aware of people pretending to believe that which they do not actually believe. And what Nietzsche is anticipating is that soon there's going to be this dawning awareness in Western culture. You know what? We really don't believe in God anymore. We've replaced God. We, Through science, through technology, we have moved beyond God, and God is 
dead in that sense, that God is no longer the organizing center of society. Now, I want to hasten to add this next point because it's really important. This was not for Nietzsche, some sort of empty, triumphalistic boast. Nietzsche, in fact, is quite different than what we might describe as, or what has been described as the new atheists. Hitchens, Dawkins, Dennett, Harris, that bunch. He's not gloating. He is making an observation that I think is accurate in as far as it goes that that we've reached a point where society no longer sustains Christian faith. Uh, But he's apprehensive about what this portends. Nietzsche thinks it's time. I mean, he's certainly in favor of Western society moving on without God, but he understands it's terribly risky. And the greatest risk of all is the risk of nihilism. People that don't really understand Nietzsche, sometimes they'll say, oh, Nietzsche, he was a nihilist. Oh, that would that would just break poor old Nietzsche's heart. I mean, he might have been, in fact, but he certainly didn't want to be. That's what he, his, his whole philosophical project was how to believe in something without believing in God. And his grand hope was Famously, if you know any Nietzsche at all, the Superman, the Ubermensch, the Overman. Ubermensch, yeah. yeah. And the idea was that now it was time for humanity to rid itself of the shackles of what he calls Christian slave morality, which is his evaluation of altruistic love. He doesn't believe that altruistic love actually exists. He thinks it's just a way for the weak to manipulate the strong and thus keep humanity sort of base and and infantile and weak, and that what needs to happen is that great men, and it would be men, by the way, he wasn't egalitarian in that regard, uh, great men should rise up as heroic Greek gods and through the will to power bring humanity into a new age, a brave new world, a new dawn, that sort of thing. Now, that's his hope. His fear is that instead of getting the Ubermensch, we will get what he calls the last man or the last men, which he... And one of the things that's interesting about Nietzsche, he's just such a good writer. And not all, not all great philosophers are great writers. Nietzsche was a great writer. And he describes the last men as sort of these incurious, entertainment-addled couch potatoes, that they don't have any aspiration for anything other than a bit of sedated happiness. And so he, he hopes for the Superman, but he's worried that we're going to get what he calls the last man, which in his philosophy is sort of the, the failed development of humanity. And it's just humanity was on a certain trajectory towards greatness and then failed. Um, well, with the benefit of now having lived through the 20th century and we're able to look back, you know, I, I do, I, in the book I fascinate, um, I, fan, I have a fantasy about having lunch with Nietzsche in some cozy cafe in Basel, Switzerland. Thing is, though, it would be, it'd probably be uncomfortable because I'd have to get him brought up to speed on what happened in the 20th century. <laughs> a, lot that he, a lot that he foresaw was accurate, but I, I would have yeah, to break yeah. it to him that, uh, you're, you're, we saw your Ubermensch goose-stepping through Berlin. And, and mm-hmm. again, I know, I, I mean, I do know my Nietzsche. And I know there's philosophers yeah. out there that are Nietzsche apologists. And so I want to address that just a second. Nietzsche was not anti-Semitic. 
Certainly not. No, he wasn't that. And and what and what the Nazis ended up doing, he would find reprehensible. That being said, um, as as Jacques Derrida points out, the one political movement that actually has taken Nietzsche seriously and regarded the birth of tragedy, Twilight of the Idols, Beyond Good and Evil, Antichrist, as their canonical texts was National Socialism in Germany in the 1930s. And I would want to say to Nietzsche, sort of, I want to say, you know, come on, man, how did you think this was going to end? This this dark fascination with a violent will to power, did you think it was going to end other than in death camps and a continent in ruins? Uh, so I have this, I have this, conflicted relationship with Nietzsche. I appreciate his thinking, his insight. He foresaw much, but I think ultimately he gets it wrong. He, he's one of the three what, what philosophers have called the masters of suspicion. These are Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud. And interestingly enough, they're all suspicious of the same thing. They're suspicious of the reality of love, altruistic love. We might say Christian agape love. Uh, Nietzsche says, nah, nah, it's, it's all about power. Marx says, yeah, no, it's all, it's all about money. Freud's going to say, no, no, it's all just, it's all about sex. Hmm. Um, and they, they are seeing some things, but this is where you want to introduce Kierkegaard into the discussion. Soren Kierkegaard, who was just a little bit before Nietzsche, he's in Denmark, Copenhagen, um, Nietzsche had heard of Kierkegaard, but never got around to reading anything, and Kierkegaard would never have heard of Nietzsche because he was a little bit ahead of him. It's, it's, a, it's fascinating how similar they are in their critique of, you know, Christendom in Western Europe in the late 19th century, yet in the end, Kierkegaard remains a believer. He's convinced that that at the center of what might be the dry husk of Christendom, there is the living grain of Christ himself. And so what I really kind of wish is that Nietzsche and Kierkegaard could have met. But, uh, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I fantasize what their conversation, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the table next, next to them <laughs> in Basel, and I'm overhearing their conversation. And I keep hearing Kierkegaard say, yes, 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 but have you thought about this? Mm. And that's, that's really what I want when everything's on fire to be. For those that are really beginning to feel a crisis of faith and think they may have to abandon Christian faith for various reasons, I want, I want this book to sort of be my yes, 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 but have you thought about this response? Well, there is so much that Nietzsche foresaw and that he got right. I mean, if you think of the last man and that understanding, it, it sort of led like Aldous Huxley a few years later had the yep. same concerns about uh, a culture. Neil Postman mm -hmm. had the same concerns uh, that we're amusing ourselves to death. And, you know, idiocracy for anybody who hasn't read that stuff. It's like that's a movie that would say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're getting getting pretty close to that. Um, so you definitely see that thread. But the other thing that was happening, which is really interesting, was, you know, Nietzsche was writing around the time that the German higher criticism was becoming mm -hmm. a thing with understanding scripture, which led eventually in the 20th century to deconstruction, to 
uh, the Jesus Seminar, if you remember that. And if some of us remember that from the 80s, 90s, where yeah, I, I, everybody sort of, questioned. I, I bring up the Jesus Seminar in the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I poke and, a little bit of fun. But but on the other hand, I have read these guys. I, I read John Dominique yeah. Cross and I read Marcus Bort to benefit. I'm just saying it's not a place you can stay. You can't end there. If you, if you end there, mm. you're in danger of your whole Christian faith unraveling. Is it... I don't want to say these aren't exact parallels, but is it a little bit like I, I travel widely, particularly through the U.S. and most of the listeners to this podcast are American and you get into the Bible Belt and it's easy to meet a leader in their 40s, 50s, 60s who still thinks it's a Christian nation. But you talk to their son or daughter and it's pretty clear that they see it as a post-Christian nation. Mm. And you get outside of the Bible Belt to the coasts or to the Northwest or wherever, and you're definitely into a post-Christian culture. And I think you can argue that America is rapidly, like I think the pandemic accelerated this. But I say all that to say that's kind of Europe in the 19th century, is it not? Mm -hmm. Going from Christian to non-Christian. What other parallels from the 19th century in Europe can Americans today pay attention to? Well, first of all, America is... America's an oddity. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've traveled a lot in Europe, and it's sort of considered a incontrovertible truism that Europe is thoroughly secular while America at least holds on to some vestige of Christianity. I, yeah, I think that's too simplistic. I don't think that's entirely true. What Europe has that the United States doesn't have is deep historic Christian roots. See, one of the things you have to remember, I don't know how unpopular what I'm going to say next will be, but <laughs> it'll be unpopular with somebody. Uh, you know, I'll hear people say, well, America was founded as a Christian country, as a Christian nation, to which I'll say, fun fact, that was England. <laughs> England was an official Christian nation with a state church and all that goes with it. The United States was really the first to experiment with the idea of secular governance. Now, yes, indeed, uh, those that were immigrating to the United States were Christians and they carried their Christianity to some extent with them. But it was at least the first wave was almost all entirely Protestant, very low church, and... What passes for, quote, a Christian nation in America is really a unique version of um, civil religion in America, Mm. that that America doesn't have those deep historic Christian roots. I sense them when I'm in Europe. Now, they're, they're very buried right now and often forgotten, but they're there, and you can see them. In the United States, I tend to sense, see more of a very thin veneer of civil religion that is ostensibly Christian, but underneath which it's thoroughly secular. So I I anticipate that what is very apparent in Western Europe, and for the most part it is secular, uh, will be only increasingly more so in the United States. I think think the current culture wars confuses that because, uh, because religious nationalism, which is perhaps my greatest Bane right now, or the church's greatest bane in America, um, gives us a false sense 
of how present actual Christian faith is in the United States. That was a that was that was sort of a rambling response. I don't know that I responded accurately, but or to what you were actually asking, but no, it's it's a really interesting conversation. But I was thinking of German higher higher criticism, yeah. which really assailed the accuracy and reliability of the scriptures, right? Biblical inerrancy right. got challenged under that. Uh, it's been taught in many seminaries for the better part of 100 years. But you see that, you know, even with the rise of the new apologetics 20, 30 years ago with defending the inaccuracy of Scripture, etc. But people are more, more and more inclined to question the reliability of Scripture, to question the divinity of Jesus. And again, these are conversations that happened a century and a half ago right. or more in Europe. So I'm just wondering what lessons there might be between... What we can learn from 19th century Europe. Well, and I think 21st one of the things we America. need to learn is not to respond with fundamentalism, mm. because fundamentalism is just a wrong-headed reaction to the Enlightenment, and it, what it wants to do is it wants to say, okay, we've had the birth of empiricism, which, which look, if empiricism stays in its lane, I don't have any problem with it. I mean, I tell, my, I tell my church regularly, I don't know of any major scientific theory that is any threat to my Christian faith. I just simply say that once scientism, empiricism, logical positivism, materialism, whatever you want to call it, has said all it can say about the phenomenon of being, there is still much that has been left unsaid. In other words, all that can be known about the phenomenon of being is not accessible through sense knowledge, through the five physical senses and its various amplifications, telescopes, microscopes, laboratories, all of that. I'm for that. I, I don't dispute any of it. I'm just saying once they've said all that they can say about it, there's still more to be said. What fundamentalism has done is tried to take the same methods of empiricism and apply it to the Bible and try to find some way to make the Bible some sort of scientific book. And then that leads you to the follies of, well, if we can just find, you know, Noah's Ark up on Mount Ararat or some rusty chariots beneath the Red Sea, then we can, quote, prove the Bible, which is, which is, not, the, which is not what the Bible— the Bible is not interested in proving itself. The Bible is this inspired witness to the Word made flesh, who is Christ, although this will take us in a whole other direction about yeah, how we yeah. understand Scripture, but— um, fundamentalism and here's the, here's the thing, Carrie. What I've seen is I've seen a lot of Christians who grew up in a fundamental or fundamental esque background, home, church, run into a crisis of faith. They discover, quote, for example, again, it turns out the Earth is not six thousand years old. <laughs> It's 4.5 billion years old. The, the cosmos is 13.8 billion years old, plus or minus 0.04%. That's just provable. And then within six weeks, they're an absolute, you know, atheist carrying around Richard Dawkins' books. What's happened is they have left Christianity but kept their fundamentalism. I I would like to suggest, and I think I do in the course of the book, suggest why don't you try to maybe dismantle, maybe deconstruct, if you want to use that word, some of your fundamentalism and try to hold on to the rich, historic, nuanced Christian faith. Yeah. 
So by empiricism, you probably, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's sort of applying an enlightenment mindset or a quantifiable mindset or a scientific method to scripture, which right. you would argue scripture was never intended to, like that wasn't in the mind of the authors of scripture. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, and that's one of those things where, and I think we all think of individuals who had this where, you know, and... and uh, they're almost, okay, this is a bit of an excursus and maybe it goes nowhere, but it almost feels to me like you mentioned fundamentalism or or you mentioned what I see right now is a real response by some Christian leaders to try to almost insulate themselves from secular post-Christian America. In other words, well, yeah. we'll just maneuver the Supreme Court or we'll elect the right people and we will get Christian America back. And in the meantime, do not engage, do not talk. It's almost a bunker mentality mm -hmm. I see developing. Mm -hmm. What is the problem? Like, where does that lead a bunker mentality? How is that part of the problem? Or do you see any solution in that at all? No, I don't see any solution in that at all. Uh, that's part of the problem. Um, it, it can It can work, if your kids aren't very intelligent, <laughs> if <laughs> if they don't go to college, uh, if you don't let them watch PBS or something, um, it when we try to maintain faith by disallowing any possibility of doubt, what we do is we actually lock our doubts away in a closet where they breed into monstrosities. Most of the doubts that Christians have to deal with, and if you're going to be a person of faith, you are going to grapple with that. That is by definition what it means to be a person of faith, all right? So most of these doubts, when brought out into the daylight and faced openly and honestly, I mean, the church has been, has been encountering these questions and these challenges for millennia. And mm -hmm. most of the time they can be dealt with and your faith can survive and you move on and it's part of how you grow. Uh, but if you say, I that is if you confuse faith for certitude or you can confuse certitude for faith, that is this, this phenomenon of the mind mm -hmm. where there is no possibility of doubt, uh, then you can just, you can create the possibility of a radical collapse of faith where, where, all, so what happens is they they bundle all of their beliefs together so tightly, and it can be everything from the divinity of Christ, which I absolutely confess, and just so people that are watching, listening to this will know kind of where I'm coming from. I actually view myself as, as a pretty conservative Christian, conservative in that I have deep respect for the great tradition and for patristics. And, you know, I think that the church uh, of the first three, four, five hundred years has a lot to say to us today. And I, I see that as a very conservative move. But if you, if you tie everything together from the Nicene Creed to young earth creationism, and then just one, one thing gets, becomes untenable, then the whole thing sometimes can just collapse rather uh, let, let's let's maintain a high Christology and then let other things be negotiable and go from mm. there. Mm. 
Anything else on um, Nietzsche, what he saw, and the implications for the world that we're living in? Um, Nietzsche, I don't put this in the book. I don't know why I didn't, but you can't put everything in a book. Nietzsche at one point lamented 2,000 years and no new God. To which I would want to say to Nietzsche, who I, again, I think fondly of, so I'm not, I'm not here just trying to bash him because I do respect his intellect. Well, I want to say, Nietzsche, no new God is coming because this is the accomplishment of Christ. Christ has swept the field clear of all rival gods. And we're at the point now, whether you like it or not, where it's Christ or what? I think the answer is it's mm. Christ or nihilism. I mean, this is, this is Peter in one of his greatest moments. You know, Peter is the apostle that, that we all like because he's so human. He has his great moments of triumph and his spectacular failures. But there was that moment when Jesus had said these things about eat my flesh, drink my blood in the synagogue in Capernaum. And people said, oh, this is crazy stuff. Who can bear this? And a lot of them began to depart. And there's this poignant moment when Jesus says to the 12, are you going to go away too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? To whom else shall we go? We've come to know that you're the son of God, that you have the words of eternal life. And whether people like it or not, there, there is no new God going to save us. And this Heidegger also, he said something similar. He said, mm. he said oh, only a God can save us now. There is no God. New, no, no new God's going to come. Yeah, he's right. Only a God can save us now, but there's no new one coming. It's the one that has come and has triumphed and has prevailed. And if we, and if we, I, I know, I know there, if, I know atheists don't like it when I talk like this. And I try to be very respectful and engage with them thoughtfully. But I'm really dubious that, in, that, that atheism as a dominant cultural way of engaging with reality leads anywhere other than nihilism ultimately. People can continue to borrow from Christian capital that they've inherited and they can, you know, they can continue to have a concept of quote human rights. But but that's all simply borrowed from ethics that are derived entirely from Christianity. Rene Girard said it this way, mm -hmm. Voltaire and his critics only criticize Christianity with Christianity. If, if you listen to the most vehement, though thoughtful, critics of Christianity today, ultimately their criticism can be distilled in, in, into this, Christianity is not Christian enough. <laughs> to which I yeah, say, there's a really good point. To which wow. I want to say, yes. See, this is Dostoevsky's observation mm. through his character, Ivan Karamazov, without God, all things are permitted. And the other way of saying it is, without God, there is no meaning and there's no real uh, way that you can established values and well Kant tried and I don't think that worked I don't think he succeeded well. either yeah no I don't think he did no you know that's really interesting because what you said if it's not Jesus it's nihilism so mm -hmm. I went through a period in my early 20s where I was trying to figure out whether 
the faith I grew up in was the faith I was going to carry into adulthood. And the jig was up. It was like, okay, you either take this seriously or you walk away, Newhoff. And so I read a lot of scripture, but I was also reading Nietzsche. I was also reading Kant. I was also reading Kierkegaard. And I came to this horrible conclusion that if it wasn't Jesus, it probably is. Well, the nicer version is existentialism. Right. The worse version is nihilism. From which, to a certain extent, deconstruction and nihilism are cousins. Um, and then you just see through everything. Then there is no hope. There is no basis of anything. And I think of that passage, I think it's in John 6, on a regular basis, you know, okay, well, who else am I going to go to? Yeah. Jesus, if you're not it, we, we're in huge trouble as a species, as a planet. And and I think you're right. There are, There are elements of Christian culture all over the culture that don't even... People don't even recognize they're living off the, you know, descendants of Christianity with their moral virtues and everything. But that's all Jesus. It's just they've exactly. Jesus away. Yeah. So, so I you wonder, think that's the I wonder, only alternative? I don't yeah. want to get too bleak here because actually I am a hopeful person. <laughs> really, really, I am. Yeah, yeah. But, but, no, but I get it. Nihilism is I, I wonder how horrible things have to get in Western culture. Before we go, oh, maybe we need to pay attention to Christ. <laughs> hmm. You know. Yeah, and then and then to your point, I'm not sure we in the church, and I'll make this collective, we in the church are exactly the best witness to Jesus well, right now. No. But no. here's here's <laughs> the thing. He, he, well, this is very interesting. Yeah. That he, whether it's the new atheists or whoever. I mean, attacking Christianity, I mean, how easy is that, right? I mean, I can do it. I, I get it. Attacking the church in particular, I get it. I mean, and and fine. Again, I will, I will again quote Gerard. Nietzsche and his successors only criticized Christianity with Christianity. But what's interesting is no one mounts a sustained attack against Jesus Christ himself. They don't even try that. Nietzsche tried— mm-hmm. And then ah, he, he couldn't sustain it. And he said, ah, no, I admire him. And uh, th- this, was, this was, you know, his final thinking before his mental collapse, you know, Dionysus or Christ, or the, he mm-hmm. called him the crucified, Dionysus or the crucified. And I think that's part of what contributed to his mental collapse. Um, so Christ himself tends to, or not tends to, I would say absolutely does stay above the fray. Even when people are launching their most vehement criticism of not only the church, but Christianity, they sort of exempt Christ from that criticism. However they understand the person, Jesus of Nazareth, from the first century, there is always this sort of, oh yeah, but he was good. And so, you know, Christians confess that Christ judges the nations. Well, he already is judging the nations. We, we already instinctively know that Christ is the standard of a righteous human being, of a, of a life rightly lived. I mean, I believe all that the creeds confess about a final judgment, but already Christ is the standard, and, and everybody pretty much knows that. And so there's where I find hope in that I find, let's criticize, you know, the church, 
Semper Reforma. Let's just try to keep reforming. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Let's not be defensive, mm-hmm. but just keep talking about Jesus. I, ha- I had a I had a critic say to me, BZ, you're a one-trick pony. All you ever talk about is Jesus and the kingdom of God. <laughs> to which I said, <laughs> well, first of all, that's two tricks. <laughs> and secondly, <laughs> all right then, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, one more question about Nietzsche, and you know him much better than I do through his writings and, and everything. But in my, you know, time with him, and I don't know whether you'd agree with this, but I've, there was anger. I mean, there is the will to power. There's the Ubermensch. There's right. all of that. There's the blistering critique of the church. And as you say, perhaps that was, you know, the child who saw a lot of hypocrisy in the home or in the village or wherever it was. But there almost feels, it almost feels to me sometimes reading Nietzsche, like there's a sadness under it. Like he wishes it was true. He wishes it was different. Did you ever pick that up or not? Yes. And do you know the last, how would I describe it? The last maybe cognizant act of Nietzsche. He spent the last 10 years of his Mm. mind really completely mentally broken down in an asylum. And let's give his dates. He was what? 1844 to 1900. Yeah, but he lost, right his, at the he lost his sanity century. in 1890. He was in Turin. Yeah, his last work was, what, 1891? Yeah, which, uh, which I believe was Antichrist. Yeah. And he was, he was in Turin, Italy. This is, this, is, this, hmm. is, this is the moment of his mental collapse. He's in Turin, Italy, and a coachman was viciously beating a horse. And Nietzsche throws his arms around the neck of of the horse to protect it from the lashing that it was receiving from the coachman, which if anybody knows their Dostoevsky, this story occurs twice. It occurs in both Crime and Punishment and in the Brothers Karamazov as fiction. And yet Nietzsche actually did it, but they weren't aware of each other. I mean, so I, I just, I just, I sometimes pray. I say, God, just, just remember that Nietzsche. Remember the Nietzsche who tried to save the horse and have mercy on his soul. That's a very moving story. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, And I think, you know, I wonder if under so many who are deconstructing, there's a sadness. Yeah. Like I I get, I get that mail all the time. I get it all the time from people who are like, cause you know, I write about the wider church and it's like, Oh, we went to a church and we were hurt so badly and or the pastor was revealed to be having an affair, or an abuser or, you know, but underneath it, like, there's anger and there needs to be anger there and there has to be a justice in the church and a repentance and all of that. But I also often detect just this sadness, like, why can't this be true? Well, it is true, but why, why can't it? I'm, I'm decoupling from something I wish was the case. Yeah, I think you're onto something here. That the beauty of Christ. I'm, I'm going to go into it. I'm going to. This isn't in the book either. <laughs> but mm. uh, I should I should talk about what's actually in the book. But I'm not. Um, <laughs> Dostoevsky, who, who you know, Dostoevsky shows up yeah. a lot in all of my books. Yeah, yeah, because because he just does. Dostoevsky wrote to his brother on one occasion, and he said something that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote it, and then, um, 
and then people are going to disagree with him, but I'm going to try to get you to understand what he's saying. He wrote to his brother and he said, if it should be proved to me, mathematically, I like that he used that word, mathematically, that Christ is outside the truth and truth is outside of Christ, I would, re- I would rather remain with Christ than with the truth. I think I understand what Dostoevsky is saying, and I like it. Um, Simone Weil didn't like it. But first of all, Dostoevsky does not believe that Christ is outside of the truth. And Dostoevsky has a high commitment to truth. But I think what he's saying as an artist, and this is what Dostoevsky is, he trusts his ability to recognize supreme beauty more than his ability to be able to figure out what is ultimately true. In other words, he trusts his instinct toward beauty. And if I could just if I could just give sort of an axiom that might be cheap, but maybe not, um, there are some things that are just too good not to be true. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I think what you're talking about with the sadness that when some people begin to think that well maybe Christ isn't true oh what, a, what how sad because it's the most beautiful story of all mm-hmm. well I you know I'll throw in a little Blaise Pascal here that you know, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing so sometimes you do need to listen to your heart and if your heart is saying something about Christ being incomprehensibly beautiful well then maybe for a season lean into that beauty and see what comes next hmm. that's a good word oh, that's a good word wow where to go next um oh there's that quote from the polish philosopher um, yeah, not to say I'm his name, the name wrong <laughs> yeah okay okay I've only read him I don't have not heard his name pronounced so I don't know Kolakowski uh Leswick Kolakowski will refer we'll link in the show notes so we'll figure that out and I want to read it it says uh there are two circumstances we should always keep simultaneously in mind first If the new generations had not continually revolted against inherited tradition, we would still be living in caves. True. Second, if revolt against inherited tradition should become universal, we would soon be back in caves. (laughs) That is such a profound (laughs) quote. Isn't it, If you throw everything out, we're back in caves, (laughs) right? Right. Um, I'd love your thoughts. It's a great quote. I was unfamiliar with that philosopher. Tell us, tell us what's behind that because we are, I was, I was talking to somebody recently. I forget whether this was on this podcast or just a personal conversation, but she said, and I'm trying to remember who it was. I just can't exactly place it. I have lots of conversations that we are now dealing with a generation and she was pointing to Gen Z that, oh, it's Lisa Bevere. It was Lisa Bevere for another podcast. Mm-hmm. I do. And she was saying they have the power to destroy, like, and they realize they have the power to destroy, yeah. right? Through social media, cancel culture. And it's interesting, you know, if, if the new generation doesn't revolt, we would still be living in caves. And if they revolt against everything, we will soon be living in caves. Where are the danger points in this current cultural moment about over-revolting or under-revolting? Mm. Well, we're, we are at a dangerous place. And I'm deeply concerned, deeply concerned about the rise of religious nationalism. It's an idol. It's a demon. It's horrible. It's, it's something that I've written, you know, and, and preached 
considerably against. I mean, you can find books like, especially Postcards from Babylon and A Farewell to Mars. So, so I am, if people are even like somewhat familiar with my work, they know that I am a strident voice critiquing religious nationalism that leans hard to the right. Um, but the left also terrifies me. And this is what Dostoevsky sets forth in his book, Demons. He foresaw, he was also prophetic, and he foresaw in a book that he published in 1872, he saw the coming of the Bolshevik Revolution. He saw what was going to happen, and he describes it in his novel. And I am concerned about those that want to just vilify all Tradition and this this is modernity at its apex, or maybe I should say at its rock bottom. This this is what what modernity has done is be, is is critique all tradition, not not critique, reject all hmm. tradition, and. It doesn't want to receive anything from the past, whether near or far past, as containing wisdom to which we should pay heed just because it has been regarded in the past as wisdom. There's this hubris, this arrogance. No, I, I, we will not listen to that. Now, here is where postmodernity is actually has a little bit of a hopeful side. Postmodernity can end up in nihilism if you if you take the left turn. There is a way, though. Postmodernity has done one good thing for us. It has sort of held up a mirror to modernity and go. You know what you are? You're just another tradition of critiquing mm-hmm. all other traditions. That's your tradition. And your tradition is to just reject all other traditions, and you do it just because it's your tradition. <laughs> And and I, I think that's like throwing water on the wicked witch of the West. You know, I'm withering. Once <laughs> once modernity sees itself like that, okay, then you have a choice. Either you say, "All right," then there is no meaning, and then you're off into nonsense. Or you say, "I have to live in my present time, but I am going to reach back prior to modernity." And I'm going to receive pre-modern wisdom traditions and then incorporate them into the time in which I live. That's what I do. And my pre-modern wisdom tradition is historically called Christianity. And so that's, that's what I'm doing. Now, modernity is great. Empiricism is great if you're just talking about inventing an iPhone, you know, or going to the dentist. I mean, I don't want to go to a medieval dentist. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> don't want the dentist going medieval yeah. on me. But neither am I going to accept that everything prior to whatever, pick whatever date, everything that isn't, you know, 21st century isn't valid. I, I, well, yeah, and 21st century circa 2022, because what we believed in 2015 was so unenlightened, right? That's exactly, the, exactly. one of the narratives. It's like, basically, our morality for all time is defined by what we believe in this moment. So this is why I pay a lot of attention terrifying. to patristics, to the church fathers. I mean, I'm, I'm, you can't tell that I'm sitting at my writing desk because it looks like everything's neat 
because you see behind me, but <laughs> piles of books <laughs> are in front of me that I'm, I'm, I'm just finishing up a book entitled The Wood Between the Worlds. It's a book on the cross. And all day long, I've been hunting down quotes from the first 400 years of Christianity, listening to them. How did they understand the cross? How did they talk about it? And so, what, what did they see that we don't see? Because you're not alone in looking at the patristics. I mean, we've had John Mark Comer on and others, and uh, Rich Velotis. There's, there's uh, not a renaissance, maybe, but at least a renewed interest. There's in a renewed many. interest, and it began really yeah. in the 1960s and 70s with the Ressourcement mm. movement in France and uh, Germany among Catholic theologians, but it's kind of all over now. Well, um, these were our first theologians, and I think they understood how to play with Scripture. They understood, because they're still close enough to the first generation, the apostolic era, where the Bible was what Christians call the Old Testament. The New Testament was in the process of being written and was still going to be a little bit longer before it was actually recognized as canonical Scripture. And so they had to work with the Old Testament, because it's the only Bible they had, but do so in a way that um, where where Jesus is found throughout. So, so Jesus has the preeminence. They are, they are overlaying the revelation of God revealed in Christ in death, burial, and resurrection over all of the text, and that is what is supreme to them, the revelation of God in the gospel story of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension. And so they, that gives them a certain playfulness that you see in Paul. And, and, I mean, if you just do a little research and find all of the times where Paul quotes the Old Testament in his writings, in Romans, in Corinthians, in Ephesians, Colossians, etc., you go, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that that was the authorial intent of Isaiah. <laughs> well, well yeah. Paul doesn't care about the authorial in, intent of Isaiah. What he cares about is inspired by the Spirit, how can I see Jesus in this text and exalt him? And I think they were so good at that. Sometimes people will call it an allegorical reading. I mean, maybe. Multiple fulfillment, yeah. you get that but, school. But they yeah. were so good at that. And <laughs> I think that's part of what has been lost through, you already mentioned, higher criticism, uh, historical critical reading, which, which I'm not opposed to. I carry that in no. my backpack. I, I have that there. Sure. But ultimately, what that does is that, that you're suddenly back to one limited meaning that prevents the text from coming alive and speaking to you right now today. Mm. And this is why I have, I have a chapter in the book entitled The Grace of Second Naivete, which is a term that given to us by Paul Rucor. That, that you actually, once you have dealt with, you know, deconstructing the text or whatever, uh, you can then return to a place where you simply allow the inspired text 
to speak to you afresh. And that's what I'm experiencing at this point in my life. And I find, for the most part, um, and there are exceptions, but I mean, for the most part, uh, the church fathers, and let's let's not forget people like Macrina, who was the teacher of St. Gregory of Nyssa and Basil and the other Gregory, Nazan, whatever. I can't say his name right now. Uh, so so I want to throw in some mothers too because I'm still yes. want to be sensitive to that. But the term is the church fathers. Uh, I find their work edifying. And mm. so that's what I've done. I've reached back. I, I was reading just I do the Bible in a year, and I, I was in Acts 15 this morning, and it's the Council of Jerusalem. And the whole question is, if you're a new Christian, do you need to be circumcised? And Peter and Paul are arguing that you don't need to be. And I'm like, that was so radical. Like, what a, what a, like, and this is months old. This is months after the, not like two months, but like you can measure the time between the resurrection and this in months, not just years. So they're early on in the history of the church. Peter, who was with Jesus, you know, who wouldn't even go into the home of a Gentile is now like, yeah, you don't need to be circumcised. I'm like, Who's got that kind of imagination today? Like, who's got that kind of boldness? Who's got that kind of freshness? Like, I would be like, I might be on the other side of that argument. I'm so wooden and stiff. We even see in the New Testament itself, you see a progression of Christian thought within the text itself. So in Acts 15, mm. they they bring this issue because there's been this problem uh, that some people that come from the church in Jerusalem purported to be have been sent by James, but James says, I didn't send them. Uh, you know, and they show up in Antioch and they're saying, No, 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 if you guys are going to be saved, you got to be circumcised and eat kosher. And so that facilitates, necessitates the uh, council in Jerusalem. And they said, Okay, well, yeah, here's the thing you are saved by faith in Christ. But Gentiles, we want you to um, don't, no, just quit, quit, don't be sexually pure. No fornication. Hmm. And uh, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. I mean, it's in that. It's, it's, it's Acts 15. Well, that, that may work in Jerusalem, but you get out into the, you know, Greco-Roman world, you're out in Corinth or wherever, it's like, well, you know, the only place we can buy meat is outside the temple of the idol where they've, they've all been sacrificed to idols, but it's just a butcher shop to us. And so Paul in Romans and in 1 Corinthians has to give them a more nuanced approach. Well, yeah, it depends on it depends, don't people, but yeah, you actually can. I mean, you actually, so you have Council of Jerusalem saying, Gentile Christians do not eat meat sacrificed to idols. Yeah, Paul's saying, yeah, it's not that simple. You can, but be careful not to offend other people. <laughs> that is a really good point. And I love that idea that you're right. I mean, if you're writing in the third century, you're, you know, you knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who was part of the, you know, original well, group of honest, apostles. The, the earlier church fathers, especially, well, I want to get into patristics. I mean, b before the church becomes the state church of the Roman Empire, uh, it, it, it is free from that long specter 
of empire and imperial control that has been imposed upon the church for the last 17 centuries. So that is that is another way in which you're getting something much different, that's fresh, that seems to be bright, bold. And so I'm not here to just tell people to go out and start reading Irenaeus and Athanasius, but it, it's been good hmm. for me. Yeah. Um, one more thought, I thought, <laughs> and this is on the longing. As I, there's a couple of other things I want to touch on before we wrap up, Brian. But um, <laughs> it's such a great line. Uh, I remember where I was when Notre Dame, the cathedral, mm. caught fire. Uh, I was in a, a lounge, the Air Canada lounge at Toronto Pearson, and I was flying to, I don't know, maybe Nashville with my assistant and my wife. And we're watching this, and we had just been to Notre Dame a couple of years earlier, and we're watching it burn with the world, just aghast and in horror. And the line in your book, when uh, Notre Dame in Paris caught fire, is, Walmart in flames is not the same as Notre Dame in flames. Uh, that really, really resonated, right? If you see a Walmart burn down, you're like, oh, Walmart's on fire. You see Notre Dame, it's like, oh, my gosh, there's just this longing that we have. Talk talk about that phenomenon yeah. because the church is in flames. Well, this was the moment of one of the greatest metaphors that I've ever seen in my life. I remember it very well. First of all, I love Notre Dame. I've been there, I don't know how many times I've been there, a bunch. I mean, when I'm in Paris, I will go to Notre Dame every time I visit Paris. I may go there every day while I'm in Paris. I just love the place mm. that much. Mm. And so I know it quite well. And it was it was Monday of Holy Week 2019, April 15th. I just got done leading a prayer service, a noon prayer service that we have during Holy Week. And I got my little notification on my phone. I mean, I couldn't, but I looked at it. It says Notre Dame is on fire. How is this even possible? Yeah, it's like things you don't have a category but, for. But, it, but I tell you, I was—I don't think I would have been that much more alarmed if the text had said, your house is on fire. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, it hit me that hard, and I came home, and I i turned on the television, and I don't, I don't think I moved for like four hours. I just—and I wept. And, I mean, I understood even in the moment that, first of all, to, to lose a cathedral— the likes of which Notre Dame is, is, is an unspeakable tragedy in and of itself. But I, I understood the metaphor in the moment. Notre Dame, Our, our Lady, our, la- our Lady's on fire. The church, the church is on fire. And what I found, and I, and I thought, oh, and there was that moment when the, when the, when the steeple fell. And I, you know, I thought, well, I thought, I mean, most of the commentators, everybody thought that probably it was going to be entirely lost. And I just thought, is this our fate? You know, does the church have to burn all the way to the ground before there can be some kind of resurrection? Maybe. But I continued watching, and of course, you know, Paris is seven hours ahead of me. It's, It's now nightfall in Paris, and people are gathering with their candles and they're singing hymns. And look, I've been in Paris a lot. Paris is maybe the epicenter of Western secularism. Oh, yeah. It's hard to find a church there on a Sunday. Yeah, exactly. The the modern secularist Parisian walking past Notre Dame with shoulder shrugging indifference is the very picture of secularism. And yet, when Notre Dame was on fire, 
they weren't cheering. They weren't shouting, burn it all down. They weren't tweeting, hashtag empty the pews, <laughs> ex-vangelical. They, they were weeping. And some of them were singing hymns. Some of them were praying. Some of them were just standing there in sorrow. I didn't see anybody that thought this was a good thing. And I thought, okay, therein lies our hope. And I suspect that many who think of themselves as done are not quite as done as they think. I I have seen this phenomenon of young people in their early 20s, done, I'm done with Christianity, done with the church, and then they have kids. And they're like, yeah, maybe I'm not as done as I thought because maybe I do want my children to grow up in a world where they hear about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and love of enemy and love of neighbor and a God who forgives. I, I wonder if some aren't done with the church as long as in the back of their mind they think it would always be there if they needed it. But when they think it could be lost. You know, I read, because I just was so moved by this, I, I read quite a bit. And I read this in-depth, you know, many pages long, article in the New York Times that they now say that Notre Dame came within about 30 minutes of being completely lost. If the two bell towers had collapsed, it would have been the end. And for that not to happen, they had to get hoses up into those bell towers. I've been up in those bell towers, just around and around and around. And a fire company was ordered to go up, take these hoses up into the bell towers. And they said, no, it's too dangerous. And another company volunteered. said, well, And they knew it was perilous and they could lose their lives, but they thought it was worth it. And they, I can't imagine, you know, wearing all of that equipment, oxygen tanks and heavy coats and axes and whatever a fireman has and pulling hoses up those narrow little winding stairs. It would be a you know, just a heroic effort. But they did it, and they were able to knock the flames back enough to, to save the, the church, to save the cathedral. And I thought, man, that's what I want to be. I mean, we're living in a time when really in the church world, almost everything's on fire. I don't want to just stand outside and say, let it burn. I want to volunteer to do my little part. And if I can help haul a hose up into those bell towers to help save it, that's what I want to do. Good thing. And you are, I mean, so far in this interview, if someone's new to you, they might think, oh, you're a professor of philosophy. No, no, no. You're a pastor no, I'm, I'm of a, a local my church. My day job is I'm a pastor of people who don't know anything about philosophy and what I'm talking about right now. I don't I do not do tons of philosophy from the pulpit on Sunday morning, but I thought maybe this is a different sort of podcast. <laughs> oh, it is. It is a different kind of podcast. This is like this is a fantastic dinner conversation that yeah. goes on into the night, and I love it. What is so? How does this inform your preaching, your approach to church, all of those things? What are What are you seeing as this hits the uh, the life of a local church? Well, a little bit about me. Uh, I have pastored one congregation for forty years. I'm 63, for those of you that are wondering, just how old is that guy? Well, he's 63. <laughs> and I come from the Jesus movement. I am the I am the kid who at 16 years of age was just 
completely blindsided by Jesus Christ. And overnight, I went from being the high school Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. It surprised everybody in the school, (laughs) including me. And they would come to me, and everybody called me Fry back then. That was my name, Fry. They didn't call me Brian. They called me Fry. And they said, Fry? I can't believe what's well, happening. Why did they to call you, you Fry? Because uh, I was fried. Fry? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I wondered. Fry, <laughs> I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't. I can't believe what's happened to you. And I said, I can't either. But it's happened. And by the <laughs> time I was seventeen, I was leading a ministry called the Catacombs, which was a, essentially a music venue for the Jesus music scene. That by the time I was twenty-two, had become Word of Life Church. So in one sense, I've officially been the pastor for 40 years. Unofficially, I've been leading it for 45 years. So I've, I've essentially been doing the work of a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> I, I tell that all the time. Every time I, lie, I say it, I just laugh because it just sounds so absurd. And it is absurd. But, and it's not a plan. It's not a method. It's not something to emulate. It's just what happened. And so I've led one congregation all these years. I mean, you know, essentially like a, a life's work. And we've been through a lot of growth and iteration because the church has sort of grown along with me and I've grown along with the church. And it's been through changes and, and we're trying to trying to be an authentic expression of Jesus in the 21st century. We made some very critical course corrections beginning about 18 years ago. That now, in retrospect, I could say if we hadn't have altered our course then, trying to do it now would have been probably impossible or disastrous. And that is, that's when I first began to uh, embrace more of the great tradition, began to incorporate a more robust theology, began to uncouple uh, Christian faith from national allegiance and made those kind of critical decisions that were costly at the time. But, you know, if we hadn't have done it then, it would be almost impossible to do now. I, mean, I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> no, I'm just wondering what the, first of all, thanks for the history. And I'm wondering what the response of a generation that is mm-hmm. deconstructing. Do mm-hmm. you see people reconnecting? Uh, is this kind of, like, I love this kind of conversation. And you know what's wonderful about it? There's enough to agitate just about everybody in it, which is fantastic, whether you're on the left or on the right or in the middle somewhere. There's something that 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 it's like, oh, this is like a really thoughtful response. You know, our congregation is... Um, it's very diverse politically and um and it's you know levels of theological acumen you know we have plenty of people that are pretty simple in their approach to faith but we have a lot of people we have a lot of pastors that have burned out or been fired or whatever that have relocated <laughs> to just be a part of our congregation and we welcome them gladly um, but we're pretty politically diverse, which seems impossible Beautiful. at the time that we are in, but it works for us. And it works because we've been able to produce, this wasn't like a program, it wasn't done intentionally, but I would, I would say that Word of Life is characterized with a culture of kindness. C- culture is what, what, what a group of people do 
just sort of naturally, unconsciously, without having to be told. It's just, well, that's why we do things here. And at Word of Life, you can hold a pretty wide spectrum of political position as long as you do it kindly, as long as you're kind about it. If you become mean, if you become cruel, I think in our church, it'll be, whoa, we're not like that here. You, you can't be that way. You can hold a, have an opinion, but you can't be mean or cruel or attacking others about it. And so that's been that's enabled us to come through this period of time when there's been so much political vitriol and acrimony, really not affected by it that much. I mean, it affects us, everyone, I suppose, but we haven't, it hasn't been tumultuous within the church. The church has been able to be more and more of a sanctuary, shelter from the storm. And, um, you know, I, I, think it, I think we're at the point now where if people show up to worship together on Sunday morning and all you get is a religious version of more of the culture wars, be it left or right, eventually people are going to say, you know, I'm not sure why I need this. I can stay home and just get, I can just watch more of my stupid cable news on, on Sunday morning. <laughs> I think, I think it's, in, it's, it's vital right now that the church be a sanctuary. I'm not talking about quietism. I'm not talking about not speaking prophetically into political and social issues. I'm all for that. But the gathering itself on Sunday morning chiefly needs to be a sanctuary where the peace of Christ and the salvation of Christ and the love of Christ is actually present to people who desperately need that. Anything else you want to say for leaders, uh, to leaders, before we wrap up? Uh, to, to leaders, especially to church leaders, I would say um, be easy on yourself. It's pretty much an impossible task right now. Um, I mean, uh, <laughs> we are trying to form people into uh, followers of Christ who are already thoroughly discipled into the rival religion of Americanism, and it makes our task almost impossible. But the Holy Spirit will help us. And so don't put a lot of um, pressure on yourself to be perfect or to you know, get it right all the time. Uh, be easy on yourself and, and, uh, and try, try to lean into that culture of kindness. Well, I thoroughly loved when everything's on fire. I would encourage leaders to have a look at it. If you enjoyed the philosophical aspects of this conversation like I did, you're going to love the book. And, and Brian, where, if people want to track with you online, where's an easy place to find you these days? Well, I have a rare name. As far as I know, I'm the only Brian Zond <laughs> out there. And uh, so just spell my last name right, Zond, and Google me. And, you know, you'll see that I'm pretty active on Twitter. A little bit on Instagram and Facebook. You'll find a website, although, you know, um, there, there was a blog site, but, you know, the podcasters killed the blog. So, <laughs> so there you go. So, we, so I just have to write books so, these days. But um, you'll Z-A-H-N-D. find me on Amazon everywhere else. So I'm not hard okay. to hunt down. Awesome. Brian, thank you for a delightful and provocative and thought provoking conversation. Thank you, Carrie.
Well, that was a good long drink of cool water on a hot day, at least it was to my soul. And if you're interested in some of the resources that we talked about, we've got show notes for you. We do with every episode. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 512. That's kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 512. You'll find transcripts, you'll find quotes, you'll find all kinds of things on the show notes. I want to thank our partners Tithely, you know, exclusively because you listen to this podcast, you can get some free resources on how to ramp up generosity this year at your church. Go to increasegenerosity.com and by Compassion, it's an organization I love. You can equip local churches around the world while seeing your church grow in the process by going to compassion.com slash church. Well, we got a lot of guests coming up. We've got Chris Anderson, the guy who founded TED Talks coming up. We also have Patrick Lencioni, Tim Tebow, Nona Jones. And next episode, Tom Rainer is back. It's been a few hundred episodes and it was about time. Here's an excerpt. If I were if I were not a Christian and I had one source to find out about the Christian faith and it was social media, I would declare never in my life would I become a Christian because those people are mean. Those people are are venomous in many cases, not in all cases, but venomous in many cases. And all they want to do is argue about the next thing. So mm-hmm. culture is not coming to church. We've got to go to them. So we're going to talk about the three biggest shifts he's seeing in the church right now, and then a powerful conversation on the death of denominations, the stunning decline in people's commitment to evangelism. And uh, well, well, we'll talk about the three Ds. We'll get into that next episode. If you subscribe, you get it automatically. I would love for you to do that. We welcome new listeners every single episode. And did you also know that we have a podcast network? It's true. You hear that little thing at the beginning of this show? It's like the Art of Leadership Network. She does such a great job. Well, we have an incredible network of podcasters who are dedicated to helping you live in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow. One of those podcasts includes Jenny Katrin. She does a podcast called Lead Culture, and Jenny is hosting a free online conference in a couple of days called the Culture Conference. It's happening on August 11th. I think you'll really enjoy it. Culture Conference is a free online conference, I've spoken there before, that provides practical tools from today's top leaders to help you build thriving teams, cultivate inspiring workplaces, and achieve your mission. I've spoken there in the past, but this year's speakers include Marcus Buckingham, Nona Jones, Mark Batterson, William Vanderblumen, and more. You can register. It's August 11th. Simply go to cultureconference.org and be sure to subscribe also while you're at it to Lead Culture with Jenny Katrin. That is her podcast, and you can do that wherever you get your podcast. One more time, cultureconference.org. It is a fantastic thing that Jenny is doing over there. Hey, thank you everybody for listening. I really appreciate you, and I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.